0: Yeah, my welcome to Steve's, if I've not had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Neil Davidson, one of the pastors here at Hope Chapel. I also want to welcome those who are joining us via Facebook Live, whether it's in real time right now or watching sometime during the next few weeks, but it's great to have you with us as well. And if you have any prayer needs or any ways that we can serve you, you can just reach out to the office at churchoffice at hopechapelsterling.org or just give the office a call at 978-422-6684. So now we're done with that commercial. So we can go on. But I have another commercial for you. And this is a Sunday morning exclusive. This is not in your not in your e-letter. It's not in the handout for today. It's not on our website. That is two weeks from yesterday. If you have a heart, we have an opportunity for you to come join us in serving. Now, the, most of the women are going to be gone on the women's retreat. But on Saturday the 28th, Sterling Little League is having their opening day. And I can remember those days when my kids were little where, you know, as a parent, you're trying to coach a team and run the snack shack and do burgers and follow your kids around and do all that kind of stuff. So last few years as a church, we've just gone over and, and taken care of running the snack shack and cooking all the burgers and hot dogs. And if you'd love to do that, we'd love to have you come out. It's guaranteed it's going to be 75 degrees, bright sun. You know, you get to see a fire truck go by. It's a lot of great fun. But we'll be there from about 10.30 to 1. We'll take you for any portion of that, whether it's 10.30 to 11.30 or 11.30 to 12.30 or whatever. But it'll be a great thing. I'd love for you to come out and help us. And You can just write right on your. your uh, the tear off flap from your handout you can just put little league on it and we'll get you in the details for for the loop so so i'm going to start for with a survey this morning all right how many of you wear glasses like me all right so how many of you like me have ever frantically looked for your glasses only to find them on your face <laughs> and, and at that moment it happens more frequently than it used to i think it's because i'm getting a little older but you know um part of what that points out to us is that sometimes we don't always see the obvious. And today's message about do-over, learning how to live by grace, the whole aftermath of the cross and the resurrection is that God's made it possible for us. God intends for us to live our lives before him by grace. So our phrase was Easter changes everything. Say that with me. Easter changes everything, right? It changes who we are. It changes how we can live. It changes where we're going when this life is over. Easter changes everything. But smack dab in the middle of that is that word change. Right? If Easter changes everything, then everything has to change. Right? Do we like change? Yeah, there we go. So, at least we have some people who are honest among us, right? Um... Jesus dealt with this issue about the necessity for change if we're going to do the new life that he gives us. And, and the place that I love to turn to to, to explore this is found in the, seventh, uh, sorry, the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And I'd love for you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Uh, if you're using one of our Bibles that are underneath the chair, you're going to find our text on page 872. We're going to zero in today on verses 36 through 39. We'll refer a little bit to 33 through 30, 35, but, but I, I want to kind of put it in a, in a wider context as Jesus confronts dead on the necessity for change and what that change needs to look like. All right? So <clears throat> let's kind of get this all into context. So we, we kind of understand the dynamics. And in chapter seven in verse 17 of chapter 5, the 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 FB, the, the Jewish FBI has showed up to investigate Jesus. Right? If you look at, at verse 17, it says so on one of those days while he was teaching, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. So all of the religious bigwigs have showed up. To check out Jesus, is he okay, or is he not? Is he dangerous, or is he from God? You know all those kinds of things. He's, you know, they they've showed up to 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 investigate Jesus, to vet him, to see how he's going on. So Jesus gets the point right away. So he's gathered in a house. As the story goes, he's, he's gathered in the house and he's teaching and it's just packed. It's just elbow room only. It's hot. Everybody's sweating, et cetera. And, and these four guys show up carrying a friend of theirs who's, there, who's paralyzed. And their intent had been to come and to place Jesus, place him right at the feet of Jesus and said, would you help our friend? But they get there and, and it's wall to wall people. And they just can't get in. So they go around the back and they take the stairs up to the roof. Now, their roofs were a little different than ours. For one thing, they weren't peaked. They were flat. They weren't made out of two-by-fours and trusses and et cetera. They were actually were like mud-thatch kind of things. And so they literally just dug a hole in the roof. And they, and they lowered Jesus down in the midst of the crowd. I wonder what the people standing under him thought. You know, what is that? You know, he's coming down. And so when he lands there, I mean, obviously, right away Jesus knows what he wants them to do. And he's looking out at the Jewish FBI that's taking notes, figuring out. He says, he says, you know what? Your sins are forgiven. And they're not happy because only God can forgive sins. This guys got, he's already on the downward slope. He's starting to get a failing grade. This is somebody we should arrest. So then Jesus says, well, let me ask you a question. What's easier to do? Is it easier just to speak the words, just say your sins are forgiven, and there's no way to prove it one way or the other, or is it easier just simply to say, Pick up your pallet and walk. And he says, and then he tells the paralytic to get up, to pick up his pallet and walk. And he gets up and he carries, grabs his pallet and he walks out of the crowd celebrating God. So the the, the Jewish leaders are like, I still don't know about this guy. So then Jesus walks out of the, the gathering and immediately the first thing he sees is a tax collector. Tax collectors were the worst of the worst, according to the Jews. Not only were they sinners, but they were traitors, right? They worked for the Romans against part of the Roman oppression of the Jewish people. So they were sinners and they were traitors. They were the worst of the worst. And Jesus looks at Levi, who we know as Matthew, who wrote our first gospel. And he says, you, come follow me. And, and Matthew was so elated to have an opportunity to get back in with God, to, to walk with God, to be a part of Jesus' disciples, and he, gets, and he throws this huge party. And the the Jewish FBI is standing around the edges watching this party. And they're thinking, look at this. He's just with all sinners. I mean, you know, he can't be righteous, right? Because righteous people don't associate with sinners. And so Jesus says to them, you know, he said, listen, you know, the, the, the people who go to the doctor Are not the people who are well, though you should go once a year, all right, for your well physical. But the people who go to the doctor, who go to the ER, aren't the people who are feeling good. The people who go to the ER, I guess it's the ED now, right, the emergency department. The people who go to the emergency department are the people who are sick. He said, "I, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners. And this whole dynamic of the fact that the way Jesus is introducing God, in the way they've always done it, the change in the old way is, is starting to surface. And so the, the Pharisees get it right away. They say, well, we got a question for you. You know, John the Baptist, who you went to when he baptized you, John the Baptist and all of his disciples, they fast and pray. We as Pharisees and all of our followers, we also fast and pray. But, but you and your followers, you guys are just party animals. All you do is eat and drink. You never fast and pray. Right? And so well, why not? And so Jesus said, well, you know, when when and let me get this clear. Fasting and praying for John the Baptist and his followers was about preparing ourselves, dealing with our sin being confronted with our sins, becoming aware of our need for a Savior, seeking repentance, and getting the way of the Lord straight, right? It was the same with the Pharisees. It's an act of mourning over their sinfulness. You know, it was, they fasted to kind of do their penance, and they prayed, and they asked for forgiveness. It was all about mourning and grief. And so Jesus says, you know, when you're at a wedding reception, it's not the time to fast. It's the time to party. It's the time to celebrate. So the bridegroom that's him, is here. The presence of God is here. And so it's time to celebrate. It's not appropriate to fast and to pray. This isn't a time for mourning. This is a time for celebration. So that time's going to come. So that time's going to come when, when, when the, the bridegroom is taken away from them. And I think that's a reference to the period of time between a Good Friday and Easter. And then once we have the resurrected Christ, it's back to joy. Now, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that a little later, but, and, and so, then he goes on to teach them a couple of parables, and draw some points, and that's where I want us to focus today. So if you have your Bibles, I know you've had them out for a long time, we're finally going to get to it, all right? So verse 36, Well, let's start with verse 35, and that way we put it all in consciousness. So then they said to him, John's disciples, they fast often, and they say prayers, and those are the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. So he's saying, you know, there, there, there's our team, and then what we thought you were on John's team, and this is the way they function, but you're doing something totally different. Well, why is that? Jesus said, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. So he also told them a parable. He actually tells them two. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but he will also, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. And no matter how much you want to press this passage, this is not about alcohol, right? You know, uh, uh, I, I've been in a lot of groups, oh, you see, you know, this good wine. This, this is not about alcohol, right? It says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, it will spill, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine should be put into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new because he says the old is better. So let's unpack those couple of parables, and then I'll get into the things that I want us to understand today about what it takes to live by grace, because Easter changes everything. And in this do-over that God's given us, in our walk with him, we need to learn to embrace and understand how it is that we need to live by grace. So there's two parables that Jesus teaches here. One is about a garment that needs to be repaired, And the other one is about recycling wineskins. So on the, the garment that needs to be repaired, now, first of all, we need to appreciate the fact that garments back there were a very different kind of commodity in the lives of people than they are today. It's much more like you and I buying a car than it is buying a shirt. For them to buy a garment was a major investment. In fact, people invested in clothes as a form of investment. They'd buy it, hold on to it, sell it at a later time, because that was one of the great things to put your money into, right? This, so these, this was a precious commodity. I mean, you would not get rid of your car just because you have a chipped windshield, right? So that's it. Pushing it off the cliff. It's got a chip windshield. I'm done with it. No, you get it fixed because it's a major investment. Same with them. So this is a very real picture. And so you have this garment that needs repair. And what Jesus, Jesus tells the story again in Mark with slightly different language. And in, in the Gospel of Mark, he talks about taking a, a patch of garment that's unshrunk, and if you put it onto a new garment, and then you wear it, and you wash it, and it dries, eventually that piece that you put on is going to shrink, and it's going to tear the garment again, but it's, and it's going to make it worse. That's not Jesus' point here at all. You know, look what he says here. He says, nobody takes a brand new garment and rips off a piece so they can go fix an old one. Look at it. I'm not making this up, right? It says, it says no one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. So, so if you've got like this ten-year-old shirt that you always use when you're doing yard work, right? And and you rip the pocket off, you're not going to go out, you know, to you know, uh, to to a store, buy the most expensive shirt they have, and then come home and tear the pocket off to put it on, unless you just really love that old shirt, right? You know, it, but you just don't do that. He says it's going to, you know, if you you don't take a new garment, tear off a piece, and try to slap it onto the old, because first of all, you're going to just ruin the new one. It's not going to be new anymore. And on the other one, it's, it's it's just going to look bad. It's not going to play its role anymore. Then he goes on and tells the story about the recycled wines, wineskins. So, again, they didn't have glass factories and all that kind of stuff or, or you know, the, all the cans that we have and bottles and et cetera. So one of the things that they used for to carry liquids, and in particular to carry wine, was goat skins primarily goat skins it wasn't always that but it was it was a piece of leather it was animal skin so when they when they prepared the animal to to harvest it to eat and those kinds of things they would skin it as cleanly as they could and they would scrape off all the hair and they would wash it and whatever and then they would take some of the leather and they would sew it into a pouch they could put a cork in right and and um and so, so often when they were working the vine press and they were getting the vi- the the, the the juice that would emerge from it, they would put it into these wineskins, and then since they were new, and they were still stretchy and flat, flexible, that as the wine, as the juice within there fermented some over time, it would let off gas, and it would, and, the, and there would be more pressure in the bag, but the bag would give with it. But just like the rest of us, you know, leather, you know, as you get older, your skin kind of begins to wrinkle, and this, and that, but the, the the leather would get brittle and stiff. So if you emptied out the, the, the wineskin and then you put new wine in and you filled it as it began to ferment, there wouldn't be any stretch. And eventually it's just going just gonna to pop a hole in it. And you're going to ruin the wineskin and you're going to lose all of the wine. And so Jesus tells these very pointed parables about the necessity of change. Now what I want to do is I want to draw a make two points this morning from verses 38 and 39. And here's the first point. And I want to start with verse 39 where he says, and no one, after drinking old wine, wants new because he says the old is better. So here's my point. Change is hard. Jesus acknowledges that change is going to be hard. I think sometimes we think about Easter and all God accomplished on the cross and the resurrection and the resin, resurrection power within us and we, and we just think, well, you know, if, I, if I've got the Holy Spirit and I have a new relationship with God through faith in Christ and I'm in Christ and that kind of stuff, it, it should just all come naturally. I should never have to think about it. It just works. Just say, it doesn't work that way. Change is hard. Now, let me give you a couple of examples about, from our own life and then I'll make some spiritual applications. So, for the last three weeks, I've been wearing new glasses. You know how many people have said, hey, look, you got new glasses? Zero. You know, and so you can only draw one of two conclusions. One, all of you need new glasses, right? Or the second point is, is that, you know what? When it, when it comes to something that's going to be on your face 18 hours a day, and you can only afford one pair, right? You know, it, it, you, you take the safe route. Right? You know, my wife was with me. We're getting our eyes stacked, whatever. I'm putting these glasses on. She said, you look dorky. You know, you look this. this. So what do you do? You land up with glasses that look just like the ones you had. Why? Because change is hard. And I'm thinking, you know what? If I buy these glasses and I don't like them and, I, you know, people start laughing at me when they see me coming, whatever, I, I, you know, this they cost a fortune, right? Glasses cost a fortune, right? You know, and so, so it's like the uncertainty of whether you're going to like them, this and that. You just stay with the tried and true. Change is hard. Well, let me let me... Tickle that out into something a lot more serious than that. You know, some of you this week um, saw in our Facebook group, we, we have a Facebook group that's closed, which we use primarily for prayer requests. And I shared with you that I got a call this week from one of our former elders, uh, Jim Cole. That He retired, moved out of Sterling, moved to upstate New York. Jim had a heart attack this past week. So we're, uh, early on Thursday morning, he had a heart attack. They put him in the cath lab, put some stents in, and he seems okay now, but, you know, and and so... In thinking about this message, I I, I did a little research on what do people do after they have a heart attack? And so here are some of the statistics I found. Now, would you say that a heart attack would get your attention? That's kind of a life-altering event, right? It's like, uh uh-oh, right? And so out of this, I read statistics that said of of the people who have a heart attack who are smokers, 50% of them quit. Now, think about it. That means 50% of them don't quit. Uh, change is hard, right? Now, granted, you know, tobacco is very addictive and all those kinds of things. It's probably the second most addictive thing on the planet after coffee. You know, it's just, it's just you know, so, all right, that's, maybe that's an exception to the rule. Well, they, I don't know if you would ever go to a doctor, especially a cardiac doctor, you know, after having a heart attack, and they wouldn't say you need to exercise regu- regularly. You know, you you, you just got to be active. You got to get the heart going and all that kind of stuff. And and you know what percentage? One out of three actually do what they should do in terms of exercise. Sixty-six percent. Two out of three say I ain't doing that. I had a heart attack, but I ain't changing. Right? It's interesting that you know they said that of of of. Of the men who have a heart attack, a full 25% never make a change to their lifestyle of any form. It's like, get out of the hospital, give me a pill, I'm living the same way I've always lived. No change at all. Well, women are a little bit better, it's about eight, 7 or 8 9%, right in there, right? About 1 out of 10, a little bit more than 1 out of 10 will actually make... Uh, uh, 9 out of 10 will pretty much make a change, right? So what's even more interesting to me is that you know, in every case, because my dad went through this and others, you know, the, when, when you have a cardiac event, they offer you cardiac rehab, and they say that less than 20% of the people actually take advantage of it. And what does that say? Change is hard. Now, listen, I'm a change animal. You know, I, I, I love change, right? I mean, you know, when I was working in Northboro and, 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 and driving home to Sterling every day, it, it would just drive me crazy to go the fastest way every day, because it was the same. Right? But I got to tell you, even those of us who think we are change animals, when it comes to actually imposing structure <laughs> and discipline because we need it, we hate that. We all, we, we all struggle with change. Now, here's what Jesus says in verse 39. Change is going to be hard for us spiritually because we really don't want it. Look at verse 39 again. Read it carefully. So when you've tasted the old wine, when you think about the way you've been doing life, when you think about the ways that you do relate to God, what makes you righteous, why God should be impressed with you, he says, you like that stuff. So I don't need that new stuff. It's what the Pharisees were saying. You know, hey, you know, we, we fast, we pray, you know, we, we wear all the phylacias. God looks at us and he's saying, So we don't need any change. We like the way we do it. The, one of the hardest things for you and I about learning to live by grace and accepting this do-over that God gives us in Jesus Christ where we can start our relationship with him anew, make life about something totally different, is that really at the core of it, a lot of us don't really want change. We wouldn't mind having a little spiritual ibuprofen to kill some of the pain. That we have, right? We, we, we wouldn't mind a, a, a little forgiveness that can diminish the, the guilt kind of thing. We wouldn't mind sticking a, a patch on the old garment, but we really don't want to change clothes completely. We just don't want that. And, and Jesus, Jesus confronts us straight up front. He says, You know what? The biggest problem. To you being people who go from fasters and mourners and trying to earn a way, and to being people who can celebrate the grace of God and live your life that way is because is what you want. You've tasted the old way, and you're saying, "I don't need that new wine. I like the way things are going." Yeah, you know, we can patch up a few things. Now, this is this has worked its way out in our ministry philosophy at Hope, Hope Chapel, and and for the good or bad of it, a lot of it stems from me is that when we think about the way that we serve you and challenge you to walk in Christ, we don't think the goal for us to be is to give you a lot of do's and don'ts. Do all this stuff, don't do any of that stuff. Right? You know, don't see these movies, don't do this, don't do that, read your Bible so many minutes a day. I'm not saying some of that stuff isn't good, but the primary problem with our becoming who we are to be in Christ really has to do with our hearts. And I'd much rather spend my time making you hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, than to giving you a bunch of rules and regulations to follow. And so what we try to work on all the time is why you should want God more, what God can do in you. Well, to fight this issue, what is it that we really want in our journey? Because the hardest thing about living by grace is that it, create, it demands a need for change, and change is hard for us, especially hard for us, because in many ways we don't really want it. Here's the second thing that Jesus would teach us. And you see this in verse 38. And he says, but new wine should or must be put into fresh wineskins. If you and I want to live by grace, there's only one way to do that. We have to change. Can't take the new wine that Jesus has given us and pour it into to the old wineskin. Not going to work. In order to put on the new garment, you can't just patch it onto the old. you got to take off the old, and you got to put on the new. In order to enjoy the new wine, the better wine, you have to be willing to pour it into a brand-new wineskin, a brand-new us. You have to be open to change. It demands change. In order for you and I to live by grace, we have to embrace change. The two are incompatible. Now, I I thought about, well, how how can I really tell if I'm doing that? And are there any hints from the scripture, the story that we're looking at, the event in Jesus' life, that give us any clues about that? And and, and I want to give you a couple of things just to think about. Because you back up and say, all right, i got to ask myself the question, do I really want change? But then over here, have I really changed? Am I experiencing the change that unleashes the change that Easter brings, that changes everything? How can I tell if that's happening? And here's the first thing i tell you. This, isn't, this is just one of many things, many symptoms, but one of the symptoms I give you is, is the issue of guilt in your life. What drove the, the fasting and prayer of John the Baptist is he, he knew that the nation and he himself were guilty of sin. And so they mourned and they fasted. The, the, the Pharisees also were, were, if you will, fasting and mourning over their prayer. And so both of these had guilt that was at the heart of it. But I got to tell you, I think that when you and I are either still in the old, we're trying to patch the two together, what we're going to experience, we, we, either one of those, right? If we are, let me get this right, if we're living the old way, just going to live with a torn garment, we're not really going to feel much guilt. Right? We're, we're just comfortable, right? You know, it's doing life my way, I don't really believe there's a God, you know, whatever feels right, whatever works, whatever's... So there's not a lot of guilt. A lot of the stuff that would drive you and I crazy as followers of Christ saying, this just isn't right in God's eyes, there's so, no problem, everybody's doing it. And there isn't really a lot of guilt. Now there can become that mo- moment when the Holy Spirit brings that confrontation with that sinfulness and there is a, a wave of guilt and conviction. But for the most part, if, if you're living your life with no guilt and you're not walking with God, that's, that's pretty much, you're just comfortable in the old garment. You know, you're, you're drinking the old wine and, and you're good with it. On the other end, those of us who have poured the wine into the new wineskin, we don't really have any guilt either. Now, don't confuse conviction with guilt. Because you and I will experience conviction of our sin. God will discipline us at time for our sin. But conviction and guilt are not the same thing. Guilt is when we say, God can't love me because of what I just did. God doesn't care about me because I did this or whatever. That's guilt, it, where it changes our identity, brings a sense of unworthiness, and I just don't belong. And, and you know, I've, I've had those moments at various times in my, in my journey where you, you feel like that. I, this is just an ad hoc story. You know, um, when I was in, um, in, late in, in uh, junior high school, you know, I was playing some baseball. Really wasn't my favorite thing, but I was playing baseball and et cetera. And so I was kind of like on the, the AAA team, right? And there was one of these games where the team that we were associated with, all the kids on the team who played for the freshman baseball team were gone. So they needed players to come, right? And I can remember going, they, so they, I got called up to play with the big guys on the fancier field, right? And I can just remember standing in the dugout, taking ground balls, you know, being in the back, and just feeling, I don't belong here, right? And, and, and there's a sense where when we, we, you know, when, when, when we as believers are living the new life, we, we have embraced the new wineskin, we've put on the new garment, we know we belong. That doesn't mean we can't get better at fielding a grounder or making a good throw to first, but we know we belong. There isn't any guilt that separates us from God. There's just conviction that gives us guidance about how to get closer to God. But when we're in the middle, that's when we experience guilt. You know, I, I want a little bit of this grace stuff from God. I want to feel good about what's going to happen to me when, when the ca- casket finally decays in the ground and that kind of stuff. But I, 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 I just want to kind of keep, and, and, and we just sacrifice that peace that comes. There's always this inner conflict that's going on. We've slapped the new garment onto the old one that's tearing, and we're trying to keep the tear from being bad. And, it's all, and, and we sit in the middle, and we struggle with that. So if you are struggling, if you think you're a follower of Christ and you have a lot of guilt, this is one of those areas where you may need to focus. Have you really embraced the new? Or are you just trying to pour the wine, the new wine, God's grace into the old wineskin? of performance and merit and effort and being worthy enough and etc. The second truth I'd give you the second thing that I'd think about is joy. To figure out whether or not you're really living with a new wineskin you've put on the new garment. I tell you look for joy. Do you have pervasive an inner pervasive sense of joy? Doesn't mean you don't have rough circumstances that there can't be difficult moments. There are places where we grieve or we hurt over the loss of loved ones or circumstances, etc. But is the inner culture of our heart and our soul one of joy? Because when you've got the bridegroom living within you, it's got to bring joy. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And, and when you and I have a lack of joy, I think it's an indication to us that we're trying to slap the old garment, the new garment onto the old uh, garment. We're, we're, we're not really embracing the new that we have in Christ. We're not living by grace. We're living by our own standards and our own efforts to get closer to God. See, Jesus tells this story because he says, you know what? If you, if you really are going to embrace the new way of doing God, it's not going to be about fasting and mourning and performance and all those other kinds of things. It's going to be about celebrating the relationship you have with God because of me. And that's joy. That's joy. And, and so if you're struggling, where do I really kind of fit in? I, I said, say, where's the guilt? Is there guilt? And is there really joy? I just want to say one last word, is that if you were going to start in a strategic place about embracing the change that God wants to bring, this is what I would tell you to do. Focus on what you think. Focus on what you believe. You know, there, there can be behaviors and habits and relationships and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying those aren't important. The number one thing i tell you to do is focus on what you believe. What, what, is it, what is it that you think you believe about who you are? What do you believe about who God is? What do you believe about what God has done? Let me give you an example. Let me do the basis for my, my counsel in that area. You look at the book of Romans. In Romans 1 through 11, Paul has spent all this time laying out, one, the old way, the old garment, the old wineskin. This, this is what God was doing. He gave the law and etc. All of that showed that that was never going to hold the new wine. It wasn't going to be sufficient. So God needed to bring a new wine, a new garment, and he's given that to us in Jesus Christ. And he spends 11 chapters tickling out what that means and the way God has done that in history and its implications. And then when he gets to the beginning of chapter 12, what does he say? He says, therefore, be transformed By the renewing of your mind. If you want to get it right, you are going to make sure you're getting the truth right. Which is why I always tell you, you don't really want to know what I think. You don't necessarily want to know what the church teaches. What you want to know is, what does God say? Because that's what you want to think. And, and, and that's, if, if you're thinking, all right, you know what, I got some work to do in this area. I want to live by grace. I understand that Easter opens up a whole new world of possibilities. I could be a new creature in Christ. I can, I can live as a child of God. I can be certain about what's going to happen. What do I do first? I tell you, focus on what you think. Work on what you believe about yourself, what you believe about God, and let the rest of the definitions fall, because that's what it's really all about. Easter can't change everything about us unless we let God's grace change us. The way Henry Placoby put this decades ago and summarizing up a bunch of spiritual principles was simply this. You can't walk with God and stay the same. If you're trying to stay the same and just add in a little God along the way, It's not going to work. You can't really walk with God and stay the same. Living by grace means we got to change and we should really want it. Let's pray together for just a minute. Father, first of all, let me just give you thanks. Thanks that the, the change that you offer us in Jesus Christ is just mind boggling. It's not about how to earn your forgiveness or proving that we're good enough or meriting up, but it's receiving the free gift of eternal life, being recreated for good works simply because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Thank you that the gift of change that you're seeking to give us is so incredible. God, we confess to you today that change is hard. We confess to you today that we don't always want the change that you bring. Father, today we ask you to change us as we surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I invite you to join me as we stand and conclude our service today. It's an opportunity for you to kind of celebrate the God who has spoken to you. It's a chance for you to celebrate God through your tithes and offerings. It's a chance for you to put your prayer request in there so we can join you in prayer throughout the course of the week. Let's stand together as we conclude our service today.